I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Valerie Van Mullicum. She is an assistant professor at Coventry University's Center for Trust, Peace, and Social Relations and a research associate at the University of Oxford's Center for the Study of Social Cohesion. Her research spans a broad range of topics roughly unified within the cognitive and evolutionary science of imagination, memory, and belief. Valerie, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. So imagination, memory, and belief. There's a lot there. Where do you want to start? Yeah. Um, where do I want to start? Uh, basically, so it kind of, what I find, what I've been finding intriguing about my research is that it does sound like a super, well, it is a very broad area of research, right? But I'm starting to see ways in which these things like, connect sometimes unexpectedly and sometimes more straightforwardly and I I do really enjoy that and I you know I've been trying to get more of a focus that people know what I'm doing but it, that's I'm slow I'm hoping I'm slowly getting there how does the evolutionary focus come into these topics right um I suppose, so memory and imagination are cognitive abilities, whereas belief can maybe be better understood as a sort of an, an, a, a product or an effect. So in that sense, I have at some point suggested that uh, the cognitive process of imagination and the mechanisms that, you know, are included therein, such as theory of mind or that sort of thing, um, are required for belief to happen. So, mm -hmm. and in the same way that we need memory to construct certain narratives, narratives which then support beliefs. So mm -hmm. in that sense, thinking about how memory and imagination work can tell us something and, and how they, you know, and in what kind of different, um, uh, I just, it's not necessarily how to work cognitively, but okay, skip. Uh, wait, let me rephrase that. So if we think about how, I know what I want to say, but like configurations, that was the word I was looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the different ways in which memory and imagination work and the different configurations that they can take so what types of memories we have what type of imagining uh, imaginings then that can tell us something about the narratives that can come out of that and the beliefs that can come out of that mm -hmm. if that makes sense so when we're talking about belief are we talking about very simple fact-based beliefs like i believe this water is safe to drink or are we talking more broadly about like abstract types of beliefs about uh more artistic things or yeah, I personally have only ever looked at beliefs, sort of higher level beliefs, if you will. So things like um, supernatural belief or worldview beliefs, not necessarily necessarily supernatural, but things like I believe mm -hmm. that science is the best way of um, gaining knowledge, or I believe that the universe is random, mm -hmm. or that there is a god. Uh -huh. So here, here's two ideas that might be a contentious topic in your field. 
I imagine there are some people who might argue something like um, people don't necessarily need to have worldviews like these. And as you reach like a, a high enough level of cognitive capacity, then maybe you can start to devote extra energy to constructing a worldview, whether that's scientific or religious. And then other people I imagine might say something like, by default, we have to do this. And the only thing that changes is what the worldview looks like. So coming from the memory research background, I would argue that no. <laughs> well, I would I would suggest or my line of thinking would be that yes, we do need something like that. It might not always be fully explicit and obvious to ourselves, but I think we do all have some kind of worldview. And it's also not static, right? We can this can change. And what I'm thinking is what I'm linking it to in my head is identity so we all it you know research shows that people who that having an identity um of some sort is associated with psychological well-being so thinking of yourself as uh as a mother as a scientist just mm -hmm. two examples there uh and on and and the narrative that you build around that, I think of myself as a scientist because I do such and such work. I think of myself as a good mother because I have done so and so. If you can construct, if you have that identity in your head and you and the narratives you built around it, if you you know having having such a narrative is associated with psychological well-being, even if that narrative can easily shift, right? So we change our identities over the years, even if we don't notice it, you know. Um, and in the same way, I'm thinking that if you don't have a worldview at all, like even if the worldview is something like everything's random, it, like nihilistic, right? Like, oh, there is no intrinsic meaning in the world. It, like, it, that sounds like, oh, there, there is no worldview. No, but the worldview is the fact that you think there is no meaning. I think having that in itself is what, what, what we all, you know, need. I, I think... Mm -hmm. yeah if you think about you know this you know identity disorders it's it's the it's an, an absence or a fragmented identity which is associated with which is just something which leads to issues i i so it's it would be my 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 hunch that we all need you know identities they don't have to be fully fledged and 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 you know, we don't have to be consciously aware of all the opinions that we have, I think. But having a coherent identity and in the in the in by extension worldview uh, mm -hmm. is I think beneficial and something that humans need. That seems to map nicely onto Piaget's the, the famous developmental psychologist, his idea that like children learn through games and through play. So when you adopt an identity, I guess you're you're learning the implicit rule structure of the society around you almost if you treat it kind of like a game yeah i actually uh i just reviewed two articles about exactly this yesterday yeah. uh which suggests that uh which we're looking at um you know how play helps us learn about social interactions mm -hmm. and then it looks at um video game play in you know various disorders to do with social cognition so autism on the one side of the spectrum 
spectrum and then schizotypy on the other and the other paper was about um role-playing games so mm. it, that suggested that we we think that childhood pretend play is you know something that children do to learn how to interact with the world which it is obviously but mm. adults do this too so adults can engage in role-playing games and there's also this you know this contributes to group identity social interaction and all that sort of thing uh -huh. do you do any developmental research yourself i do not know no okay. um I, I do still wanted to ask the question but we we can preface it by mm -hmm. saying like this is more just speculation um what do you think it it does to children to have structured versus unstructured play so we're on one hand uh, especially if if we're looking like in our evolutionary past, you kind of just have to pick up a stick and maybe it's a sword, maybe it's a wand. Like you have to use your imagination a lot more. And then nowadays you have like toy kits and it almost tells you what to do. So I'm wondering if that might shape your thinking in a in a more constrained way. Hmm. I um I I have some thoughts about this. What well, so I used to think uh, something similar I used to think that about television so if we mm -hmm. watch tv instead of reading books then this, the narrative the images is all there right we don't have to do anything mm -hmm. but um coming back to your question I wonder so one way in which children still have to use their imagination is through storytelling so when they mm -hmm. have you know I think every well you know typically developing children I think come up with little stories themselves oh. even if you know my daughter has a frozen set <laughs> with like but they can't she comes up with little stories like oh she needs a cape because she is cold or something uh -huh. um and is so i'm i i suppose i'm questioning i'm questioning both sides i'm thinking yeah. even if you have a stick i think there will be rules because there are certain rules of how you interact with other people and everyone knows not everything goes you can't say look I've got the stick and it's water like what no you can pretend it's like a doll or a... there's still rules I think and on the other hand and I, I think children still have plenty of unstructured play that we might not yeah. necessarily see um, but yeah no idea what the actual effects are or you know the proportion of you know types of toys available yeah well an interesting hypothesis to test for a developmental psychologist out there might be whether children optimize the fluid rigidity and fluidity of their play so for example maybe if you only have sticks to play with you have to adopt sort of a very rigid story specifically just because it's harder to imagine that when there's so much freedom and then maybe on the other extreme if you have like, let's say you have a playroom and there's specific outfits. So, you know, you have to be a cowboy because that's the only thing you can get dressed up as. But maybe you can add the dimension of being a space cowboy. So you you let the, the narrative expand a lot more to accommodate the additional rigidity of, of the things you're playing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So did you start off in a, in a more traditionally cognitive sense, researching memory and imagination? And then... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my PhD was on the cognitive neuroscience of imagination, where I worked with Donna Rose Edis and Mike Corbelis, late Mike Corbelis. He, we, so we 
we try to figure out um, the role of the hippocampus when we imagine future events. So, for example, oh, I've got a job interview next week. And then I'm trying to think, you know, who will be there? What will it look like? How will the room be? We, like, generate these uh-huh. um, scenarios in our head, right? So, basically, that. Um, so, this because... is, like, functional imagination rather than, like, space cowboy imagination. Um. I suppose so but it's so the hypothesis was that um the, the type of imagination we looked at future event imagination is based on episodic memory so our memory for personal experiences rather than for facts and so on like semantic memory uh and the idea is that when we imagine novel events um such as future events we use our memory for past experiences and combine memory details in a new way um, to generate these novel events. So any event that happens in the future will never be identical to the one in the past, right? So for that reason, you have to come up with something that's completely new. But we also don't know whether that's necessarily going to happen. And we can combine memory details from our past in a way that we know will never happen. Uh, so in that sense, the, the the hypothesis was that the imagination that we do, imagining, sorry, that we do when we imagine future events is not distinct necessarily from, let's say, fantastical imagining, like you say, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, being sca- space cowboys in the future. Um, although, you know, there's actually research is sort of lacking in that respect last time I checked. Mm-hmm. I, have yeah, you heard of the auditory cheesecake metaphor with respect to music? The auditory cheesecake. Oh, is that to do with the evolutionary? Uh, tell me. Um, Steven Pinker posed this, he, uh, a psycholinguist. So he was basically making the argument that we didn't evolve for music specifically. We evolved for language and music was like an artistic byproduct of that. Just like we evolved to like fat and sugar uh, not cheesecake specifically, but we like cheesecake because we like fat and sugar. So I'm wondering if in this sense that the more artistic imagination is like a byproduct of imagination. So like there's two ways you could define imagination, I guess. There's imagination as basically simulating a hypothetical future that you're about to enter, and that would have clear survival advantages. And then there's the the imagination in the sense of like imagining something that might never exist and might never help you, but it's fun. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, so, yeah, this that might well be true. I uh, I personally don't believe that the arts is a byproduct and I'm working on research on exactly that, where I try to show that the arts, like religion, actually are symbolic systems so um what i mean with that is that we when we think so they seem frivolous right music uh a painting sure it might mean something but it's not gonna like it's not a solar panel it's not gonna you know it's not we're not growing crops here um but no fact but what i'm suggesting is that what arts and religion are really good at is producing symbols that stand for beliefs, feelings, and experiences. And they give answers not to factual questions, like, you know, is the sun 
at the center of our solar system. The hint is in the name. Uh, <laughs> but can it answer questions like, why are we here? How do we, how do I live together with other people? Mm-hmm. So it's questions that science may be less equipped, not necessarily unequipped, right? But less equipped oh. at answering. Um, so basically questions to do with the human experience specifically, like how mm-hmm. humans experience the world. And so the way arts and reli- arts and religion might do that is by the products that they generate. So religion mm, has rituals that we go through that mm-hmm. then evoke experiences in us and that can then um, mm, consolidate beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel if you feel the presence of God through a religious ritual that you're attending, that, for example, could um, uh, consolidate your belief in God, or you know, maintain it, um, and that's sort of the idea. Uh, yeah, there seems to be a point at which those more subjective and objective truths meet, because you could have a a more cynical perspective saying something like, "You're just constructing these beliefs." in order to alleviate death anxiety or get rid of feelings of nihilism because you want to feel like there's a purpose. And then you can say, okay, maybe that's true, but to the extent it's true, some worldviews are gonna be better at doing that than others. So even there, there's kind of this meta truth of how successful that worldview is at, uh, at giving you meaning. And then that seems to be sort of a meta meaning on its own. Yeah, I, yeah. I think we, so one of my other research project looks at secular beliefs and suggests that, uh, I mentioned this briefly before, that we tend to think, for example, of atheists as people who simply lack belief in God. And you can think of nihilists as people who don't have beliefs, but I, so I don't think that's true. I think that both atheists and nihilists still have ontological beliefs and ethical beliefs and ideas of what the world is. It's just that they are nihilistic or uh-huh. atheist. And um, in the research that we did, we asked uh, a thousand people from 10 countries around the world, although pre- predominantly Western, right? I won't. Um what they believe in if they don't believe in God. And the way I phrased it a bit awkwardly that way, people, you know, accused me of having a religious agenda, which I didn't. But I, what I wanted to get at was like, you know, the, the, what are your sort of core beliefs about the big questions? Um, and what we found was that there were really interesting categories. So most people mentioned that they believe in science and scientific methods, which might be because we mostly asked ended up asking atheists what they believed in. Um, but also people said they believe in kindness and equality for all people in, you know, uh, just living your life to the max, considering we only have one life, that sort of beliefs. So there was a whole, what I'm trying to say is, there was a whole range of beliefs, even, you know, even in, in so in, in people who said they, they don't have beliefs, so, some of whom said, oh, I don't have beliefs. Well, you do. We just—it's the word belief that maybe uh, has some connotation. So I've started switching to worldview instead, which seems more acceptable. Uh-huh. It's kind of like a chicken and egg problem because you can have religious believers look at atheists with values like that and say, "Oh, you believe in truth and goodness, so you still have this sort of 
more metaphysical worldview. You just don't realize it. And then the atheist might look at that and say something like, no, truth and goodness exist outside of any particular religious framework. And it's either way, it does seem to be a metaphysical belief, but you can't know whether yeah. that's whether like religion emerges because that sort of exists as a natural law type thing or whether that exists as a natural law type thing because some framework might explain it in a, in a particular way. Um, I think religion is really good. Religions are really good at providing people with a set of coherent metaphysical, well, mostly coherent metaphysical ideas. And because you're often taught religion by first by your parents and then religious authorities and so on and the people around you it's easy to then take it on board and you know you can later adjust your beliefs and so on so i think in that sense that it's it seems as it yeah i so i can see how that seems like a chicken and egg problem uh what i'm trying to say is I think in the absence of religion, people still come up with their own metaphysical mm -hmm. views. It's just that if religion is there, it's just, uh -huh. you know, often ready. Right. So it, I guess it depends how we're defining religion. Because if we say we're defining religion as like an organized set of doctrines that are already exist, then there's a, a finite number of religions. But then if you more broadly say something like religious belief is any belief that has these axiomatic metaphysical presuppositions that you have to make almost based on faith because you can't necessarily prove um, what goodness is, for example, then it, it's, it starts to approximate religious belief, but I guess it depends on how comfortable you're using, you are using that term. Hmm, yeah, um, I'm, you know, uh, cognizant of religions that don't focus so much on belief at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and focus more on practices, especially, you know, I, as far as I'm aware, in the more in the East, if we can say that. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, it's it, we have to be aware of not, you know, um, what do you call it? Of not. Some sort of we have to be aware, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to firm, we have to be aware that we, we might um, go wrong, let's say, and think of religion as one of the world religions, which are predominantly Abrahamic, mm -hmm. and then think of religion in a very specific way, even though there are many religions around the world which don't work right. in the same Abrahamic way. So, right. um, yeah, that's what uh -huh. I would say. So there are natural or cultural selection processes happening on religion, right? Because you, you could invent a religion every day, and I'm sure people do, but most of them die out and they don't spread. And then the ones that have lasted thousands of years probably share some traits in common that have allowed them to propagate. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'll be able to um, comment on that just because that's such a, you'd have to look at all the historical var variables and... Mm -hmm. And yeah, but uh, what I am in related, what I am interested in and what I'm researching is actually, uh, I just want to grant to look at uh, atheism in the Nordic countries, so Scandinavia, but um, more or less, 
And the idea is that we try and explain belief there. And we don't just try to explain the absence of God belief, but also the presence of other types of beliefs, like believe in science, let's say. And the idea is that it's not just the cognitive um, uh, cognitive developments. So it's, so we go against the idea that, oh, once you have enough education, people will stop believing in God or something like that. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're looking at cultural transmission. So how if if most people in a village, let's say, all believe one thing, you are more likely to believe that thing as well. If people who are prestigious all believe one thing, then you are more likely to imitate that as well. Um, and so we're trying to look at all these type of cultural learning transmissions or like um, cultural learning biases. So look at how people are biased to learn from others and see mm-hmm. whether this is whether this influences what people believe in in highly secular countries like uh-huh. in, uh, the Nordic countries so for the most part we're more likely to conform to the dominant group beliefs but what happens when it's something like people ascribe almost a certain nobility to themselves for going against the norm so whether that's mm-hmm. like uh a minority religious community that's being persecuted or even if it's just like a conspiracy belief because I know you've done mm. research on that as well I imagine conspiracy thinking involves phrases like you know every everyone else is like just missing it and I'm the one who figured it out so there's there's this maybe it's like an intellectual arrogance that misses that normal sort of pushing you towards whatever the rest of the group is doing so I was exactly yeah I was also thinking about conspiracy belief um so I'm working on that as well but like very much a work in progress so no results or anything like that but I think the same biases are in effect there but not the bandwagon bias not the bias that oh most people believe because they you know there is um conspiracy belief is correlated with like feelings of uniqueness um well narcissism as well a few other things so the the need to feel unique for example so i think in those cases it's more likely that it will be things like prestige bias so people they hold in very high regards whether they are that guy from infowars or something like that mm-hmm. will they're more likely to take information from people that they hold in high regard and less likely to take information from people they don't trust like governments and scientists and so on um Mm -hmm. so i think the idea is that as with religious beliefs they're 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 different things right but in some ways they might work slightly in similar ways so like religious beliefs my suggestion would be that conspiracy beliefs are not just you know low levels of critical thinking or you know um low levels of education or anything like that it's you know it's very much a social uh phenomenon as well i think Mm -hmm. so we've already seen that it's highly correlated with trust in the government and the scientists but also i think and this is what i'm working on now it's like looking at these cultural learning biases. Like, who are they? 
trusting information from and why are they transmitting information as well? Why are they, sorry, like passing it on? So for example, there's some reason to suggest that sometimes people pass on misinformation they know is untrue, but to for their reputation. So they are, or maybe they don't know it's untrue, but they, they also don't know necessarily that it's true, but they pass it on to show like, look, I'm someone who thinks these ideas and that bolster, can bolster reputation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess I guess it's more complicated because there are historical examples of, of there being that sort of singular figure who's a minority belief, like Galileo, for example, standing up against the dominant belief mm. that uh, the Earth is, is, was it Galileo? Uh, is it yeah, <laughs> the center yeah, well. of the universe? Um, or even more recently, I guess, like people who, a, a small minority of doctors who believe that smoking was actually bad for you. And then you have even the government saying, um, no, it's fine. And then later to reverse their position. Yeah, I'm thinking about Jesus, actually. That was, he was in, he was in a minority when he started. He was going against the local religion. Uh-huh. Right, so there, uh, there's some set of properties that sometimes allow these different beliefs to die out. And then other times for them to like uh, get madly. What do you think those properties are? Mm, yeah, you asked me this early in the interview. <laughs> you snuck it back in. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. You know, um, I mean, we can think about. So, what makes certain religions more successful than others? I'm not sure. And it doesn't have to be just religions, because we, well, we could be talking about conspiracy belief or really any type of belief. Uh, oh right. Maybe more subjective things though, because because if we're talking about scientific belief, then ideally there's like fact checking. But if we're talking about a subjective thing, uh, where where one side could win depending on different properties that an argument has. Yeah. So at some some other work um, that I've been collaborating with others on is um, the cultural evolution of conspiracy beliefs. So why do certain conspiracy beliefs get believed uh sorry conspiracy theories believed but that others die out which is basically actually what you're asking mm -hmm. and so suggestion is that uh again these cultural learning biases say you know have an influence so if a theory gets endorsed by a celebrity there we go that's more likely to be passed on but then on the other hand we also have content biases so and this is from work in uh, narrative research. So again, a link to memory, which is kind of nice. Um, so certain narratives like the conspiracy theories that have certain features are more likely to be remembered and trans transmitted. For example, mm -hmm. uh, emotional narratives, uh, um, threatening narratives, uh, narratives with negative emotional content. These are all things that grasp our attention and like are more likely to be remembered. And um, so, if conspiracy theories have these, you know, these sort of features, then that contributes to their longevity. Um, and in part, I I've wondered whether this is why um scientific um information and knowledge about COVID-19 has lost out against conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are just so much more appealing they're like a 
They're like, uh-huh. uh, you know, a scary no- science fiction novel or something like that. You know, they're like, ah, this is going to happen and this and that and right. lizards and I don't know. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> right. Then- so there's the negative parts like dragging you down if the worldview is true. But then there's also, I guess, it, it depends on how heavily you're going to wait, like feeling special and feeling like you're one of the few people who's figured it out in a world of chaos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether that plays a really big role because, like, the world is not getting less complex, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, as technology advances, we are, I think, less able to understand exactly how everything works. Like, would we mm-hmm. be able to, in single individual, would they be able to, to reproduce agriculture, to reproduce how to do electricity, how to, all these uh-huh. processes in our lives become so far removed from us. And then suddenly, like, this complex new phenomenon shows up, a new disease. Nobody knows how it works, what happens, consequences, but you figured it out, uh-huh. <laughs> right? There is suddenly, you get, suddenly you feel like you've got knowledge and you've done it. And it just happens so rarely. Like, uh-huh. one time I was describing how that might feel to someone who has conspiracy theories. And I realized it was just, I was describing how I feel when I do academic research. When you get a solution to a problem that you've been struggling with and it seems really important, that's just a, that's like solving a really complicated puzzle. That's like, right. that's rewarding for sure. So I do get it. Like, So I guess the, the often overlooked part about scientific training is it it's not necessarily that we're training to come up with hypotheses. That's almost the natural fun part. We're training for years and years to throw away most of them <laughs> based on based on finding every possible way you could falsify it. And only if you can't falsify it, do you then accept it cautiously. I mean, that's, that's the idea, right? I don't know if we, you know, science is fast these days. You need a new publication, you need a new this, new that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we stay with problems long enough, actually. I'd, lo- I'd love to stay with one problem for longer but you know then a new thing pops up and I'm like oh that mm-hmm. sounds interesting and then off yeah. we go so you also do research at Oxford do you know Celia Hayes ah uh, well yes I know her work but I don't know her personally uh, she's one of my first guests on the podcast she does oh. a lot of work on cultural evolution and also imitation mm-hmm. and when you were talking about earlier the the cognitive biases uh, like imitating a celebrity for example I was wondering to what extent imitation uh, might be one of the means that propagates uh, in, in imagination or belief or uh, memory. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I've always thought of imitation as sort of like it's more behavioral, um, right? So this would be so... imitation in, in the evolutionary sense. Ah, sorry. Right. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Of course. Um yeah, faithful imitation. Um, yeah, to, that's. I do, I don't feel super qualified to answer that question. I think I like. I'm worried. I'm gonna go and talk about things that don't really. Most of the fun is in speculation, but it's also where most of the hesitancy happens. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, I. I think I. <laughs> I go broad enough in general. Um, yeah, imitation. Mm. 
I think I think that might be best for me just because I mean, here's, a, here's a way to rephrase it because when, okay. when we were talking over email about some of like your recent work on belief you mm. were suggesting we could talk about nature and nurture influences so perhaps oh, we yeah. start with nurture because that might might include imitation among other things because that's more social and then we could head to to the more internal nurture part or nature part well yeah so well basically what i have been meaning with that in my recent research is that so these cultural learning biases social and cultural learning biases are the nurture side where you know certain cognitive biases could be all kinds of tendencies from personality to analytical thinking whatever so we sort of go we sort of been going through that already um mm-hmm. is Im- imitation i imagine is you know influenced by social learning biases as, as other learning processes are just like imitation mm-hmm. um uh-huh. Right. So then, so then I guess the question is whether imitation itself is, uh, is like its own evolved phenomenon as, as Hayes is arguing, or whether it's a byproduct of, of other things like, uh, like this, these more social cognitive biases, uh, that for better or worse. So it's like whether, whether you've genuinely evolved to imitate things you admire, or whether you've evolved to identify things you've admired um, or don't admire, and then you just modify your behavior as such, but imitation might not be the primary drive of that. It just might look like imitation. Gosh, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um... I don't know. I... <laughs> um, so how about on the, the nature side then? The way so the way I think about um, the nature side is that we have evolved. So the the biases that we have are like rules of thumb that the brain uses to get somewhere efficiently, right? So sometimes they work really well, and then other times, you know, very it doesn't fit so well anymore. Um, you know, like like the cheesecake example, I suppose. So like, you know, really good to like fats because, you know, you make sure that you eat that when there is plenty. So you're safe when there's not, but now we've got too much of it and mm-hmm. that's not good for us. Um, or sugar, actually a better example. Um, but what's, what I find kind of interesting is that it's sort of that these things happen at this together with cultural evolution right so if our brain works in a certain way because of years of evolution then now the cultural products that we have so certain narratives now fit that brain because those are the narratives that survive right in a very much the same way as you know uh biological evolution which i find that really interesting so they sort of work off each other Uh uh-huh and then so that's also a chicken and egg problem because it's like are we constructing narratives that fit our heuristics 
or our heuristics constructed out of the types of like reflective of the types of narratives that we've constructed over thousands of years or millions of years. Hmm. I guess we need a cognitive apparatus first to be able to construct a narrative in the first place. Uh-huh. Um, right. So and there's narratives and then there's something sort of like intuitive physics. There's some famous developmental research on that where it's like even babies sort of have an idea that something shouldn't just fall through a table or through a, a solid object. And you, you can kind of expand that more broadly that even adults who aren't trained in physics probably have some theories for like, you know, how it rains or how tornadoes are formed. Even if they're wrong, it's probably going to be internally coherent. So there's the question of if we have that for every type of belief, even, even outside of like physical science. Um, I know we have like, or I know, um, from what I've understood, we have things like intuitive psychology as well, intuitive uh-huh. biology, where that comes from, whether that builds on things we've already learned. I'm not sure again, because I'm not developmental, but um, I guess you could, intuitive psychology might follow from things that we just simply extrapolate from what we mm-hmm. see around us. Um, yeah, where it starts, I don't know. That's a... Yeah, as well. So that's another interesting example where there's like these evolutionary forces that most of these intuitive beliefs that people construct are probably going to be wrong. But now and then, even if it's for the wrong reasons, one will be adaptive. And there, there seems to be an interplay with religion there too, like especially... Um, earlier religions with with like these dietary restrictions and maybe they say god doesn't want you to eat this particular food and they think and then when someone eats that food they get sick and it's like look god is punishing you and maybe all of that is sort of just capturing the fact that some particular food is more likely to carry diseases so it's it's sort of an intuitive biology of that in a roundabout way yeah i used to find out a really compelling explanation but I actually read this last week that it was I read some research that seemed to just just debunk that that mm-hmm. it's not that the, the food um food spoiling and religious belief didn't hold that link and I was so sad that so mm-hmm. I haven't read the debunking in detail so maybe there's still hope but I found that very sad because I found it very intuitive. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. So, so maybe if that is wrong, that's an example of intuitive psychology. So mm-hmm. would you be able to describe how that belief uh, was debunked? No, no, I detail. didn't try. And I, I really, it was probably a tweet to an article and I still need to read it. Um, but I, yeah, I'm only just back to work. So I haven't really... Uh-huh. Okay, so here's an example of the, the heuristic, which I'm not saying is a bad one, of mm-hmm. seeing an academic colleague publish something and then trusting their word for it without yeah. reading the primary source. And we probably wouldn't get nearly as far in science if we weren't able to do that because every single day there's way too much for any one person to read. Well, this is the thing. Everything goes, and, and we are moving fast ourselves as well. So if I could, I mean, this is this is my my dream right to be able to focus on one topic and just staying there and really trying to be all of it but then you know I'm the you know I'm the 
what do you call it? Um, mm-hmm. the, the the captain of my ship, and I'm constantly staring at all kinds of uh-huh. directions, so I can't help myself. But um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going oh. with this. So another idea that I think was also Piaget is that when when you're a child, you engage in imaginative play, and you're exploring like almost everything you can for the idea of learning, and then gradually you discipline yourself because um, you don't want to be uh, like a potential is is just potential, I guess. So you have to sort of narrow yourself into becoming something rather than existing in the possibility of everything. But then once you become a master, you sort of open up yourself to that idea of play again, like through your through your newly informed worldview, you can look at things again in a new light. So there's, it's it's sort of like this funnel idea, like you start broad, but you don't know anything. And then you narrow, so you learn something. And then once you've developed enough expertise in a particular area, you can broaden out again with that uh, knowledge in mind. Yeah, there's a Picasso saying for that. Uh, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is funny, which is exactly what he's done. Have you? Did you know that Pablo Picasso, before he did his famous, you know, disfigured faces paintings and other, he actually used to paint really realistic paintings, just landscapes and that highly detailed, very, you know, very um, skilled, but not uh-huh. that his later paintings aren't skilled, but like the opposite, but... Uh, you wouldn't think of it as a Picasso because it's just a landscape or something like that. So he's done it himself um, in that way. That makes a lot of sense. It it reminds me of another quote attributed to him. Uh, Someone goes up to him and asks him to draw a little sketch. um, And he does. And they said, can I keep it? And he says, no. And they're like, what do you mean? It it only took you 30 seconds. And he said, no, it Mm -hmm. took me 60 years. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good one. Well, this has been very fun, Valerie. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your research with us and for speculating with me. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it was yeah good to do. Very speculative. Lots of disclaimers in my head. It's funny how we, you know, don't want to be pinned down on a wrong idea. Just uh, but uh, like you said, it is it is some of the most fun parts of science to think about all the different ways things can go. Yeah, I was I was attracted to your research. So thank you. How yeah. broad the That's focus fine. is. So uh keep it up. <laughs>